Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Today we have on Natalia Melman Petrozella. She's a historian of contemporary American politics and culture and associate professor of history at the New School. A certified fitness instructor, she has worked out at home and in gyms for nearly three decades. She's the author of Classroom Wars, Language, Sex, and the Making of Modern Political Culture. And her work has appeared in outlets such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Atlantic, and CNN. She's co-producer and host of the acclaimed podcast, Welcome to Your Fantasy, and co-host of the Past Present Podcast. And her newest book, available now, is called Fit Nation, The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession. Welcome, Natalia. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. So in her book, Natalia writes, exercise signifies affluence. Gyms, especially in their boutique studio form, a super luxury 21st century invention that was the industry's fastest growing segment before the pandemic, and that ever since has continued to attract private equity investment and spawn IPOs, cluster in wealthy neighborhoods. Many white collar employees enjoy workplace well- wellness programs, health club memberships subsidized by private insurance, and enough control over their work schedules to be able to incorporate exercise into their day. Fitness has not only been become a physical pursuit, but a, ubiqui- but a ubiquitous accoutrement of an aspirational lifestyle promoted by celebrities, on- online influencers, and everyday people who emulate them on social media. Glistening selfies taken after a waitlist-only spin class, destination marathons, expensive athlete, expensive athlete, athleticure closing, a 2,500 stationary bike or a fitness concierge who will plan, book, and accompany you to your workout. Actual exercise instruction sold separately. Money and motivation are necessary, but not sufficient for full participation in what I call the fit nation. How a person's body is perceived, can look or un- can lock or unlock social benefits and more. So I love this. And it reminds me of, so this weekend, Chris Rock had a special on Netflix and he had this really great joke that it reminds me of. And he's like, you know, you can kind of tell the neighborhood that you're in by who kind of works and who doesn't. So the joke was essentially when you know you're in a neighborhood and it's a bunch of women hanging out, they're taking soul cycle classes, fitness classes. It's a great neighborhood, right? But if it's a bunch of guys like kind of standing around smoking cigarettes, you're in danger. Run. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so interesting that kind of fitness became and fitness, this thing that we obviously all need, but it's so interesting how it is relatively connected to the affluent and connected to rich people. Because for the most part, and this is something that as a therapist I talk to my clients a lot about, is that most people don't have the time and the energy to work out. So obviously, and now we're starting to talk about your book and we're starting to talk a little bit about the history of fitness. So how did fitness and wealth become associated? Yeah. So the first way that that, first of all, thanks for reading that. It's always still weird to hear other people reading my work out loud. I'm like, oh, that sounds familiar. Um, But I'm glad that that resonated with you. So the first thing that I think is kind of interesting is that like the first people in the United States, like kind of in the late 19th century who were really into fitness and like lifting weights is really what that was. They had to do so much work to convince people that they weren't like these low class manual laborers because like actually doing physical work was seen as something that like unintelligent people did or people who had to like lift heavy stones or, you know, move boxes to make money. So that that is super interesting. Now, what ends up happening is that the enthusiasm for fitness in this country really grows at moments when the white collar economy expands. So in like the 1920s, in the 1950s, in the 1980s, you have more and more people spending more and more of their time, like working at a desk, right? Being in a car, being in a train, getting their entertainment through television, uh, video games, et cetera. And every time 
you have that happen. You have a kind of commensurate expansion of like this idea and this pressure that like you need to go work out. So that, those things being connected, I think is important. And that is because being sedentary obviously takes a toll on your body. And so now you need to go and do this elsewhere. Now, of course, the people who are getting to do that white collar labor are for the most part wealthier people. So it's what I call kind of like the paradox of prosperity in a way, right? That like, oh, you're like clearly of the better class. You have a job where you use your mind instead of your body, but oh my God, that job is taking a toll on your body. So that's why you kind of have like a fitness industry and this kind of association with the idea that like purpose of exercise, like going to work out for working out sake is something more affluent people do because those are people whose work life is set up in a way that they're not getting physical exercise as just like the course of a normal day. So I think that's kind of the beginning of it. The other big framing aspect of it is, of course, like this is America, like capitalism. Why give something away or have the state give it to you when you can sell it? And so I think mm -hmm. that there's this really interesting thing that happens where, you know, exercise it, for the most part is something that we all agree is good for you, but we don't agree enough that it's good for you, that we actually have policies that make it kind of like free or very accessible to access and or accessible to, to participate in. So you have an industry that arises first kind of selling exercise to um, affluent people who are sitting all day. And then that kind of grows. And so this notion that you need to work out to offset what you do in your regular life first originates with white collar labor. So I think that's part of it. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, I never used to think of it as sort of like a high-end luxury, right? Like I figured, no, anybody could work out, right? But you, you're right. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. It is something that is kind of marketed to us, right? It's something like we need to care about, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think some, some things are more accessible than others, you know, like it's obviously like less expensive to go for a jog than it is to go like hella skiing somewhere. Right. Like, of mm -hmm. course, but I do think one of the things I try to push back on in this book is like this very individualizing discourse often that exists, honestly, about running, but exercise in general, which is like, the only reason people don't exercise is because they're lazy and they lack motivation. Well, actually, like depending on the neighborhood you live in and like what kind of job you work and yes, whether you can afford running shoes, but also if you have control of over your commute and childcare and all the rest, that also really shapes whether you exercise or not. And so I try to kind of connect it to that inequality conversation. That's interesting. And I'm just curious, how did you uh, get into this field? I know you talk about it in your book, but it's actually it's yeah. very interesting to me. I'm presuming at least some of your listeners have not read my book yet. So yes, don't feel bad about asking. Um, so basically, I mean, I'm a historian. I in some ways have a pretty conventional training in that regard. I have a PhD in history. I'm a professor at the new school. I teach courses in history, but I had this kind of double life where I was a fitness instructor as well. And I really had this sense that I had this like divided existence. Like there was like the life of the mind and the life of the body. And I, especially as a scholar, I was like very concerned that if people knew I was teaching fitness and so into the gym, they wouldn't take me seriously as a scholar. I like grew up a little bit, kind of got over that a bit, um, in part through founding a, um, a civic engagement program that I ran through my campus for a while, where I was working with food justice activists to do fitness and food education in, in New York City public schools. Once we started doing that and we saw the kind of excitement around that program and the fact that there really was this kind of, you know, need around wellness inequality and that few people were talking about it. This is back in 2012. I'm like, all right, well, 
this is a serious realm of inquiry. This notion of kind of wellness inequality is a place where there is space to do work. And me as a historian, as an expert in fitness, as someone, my first book was about education. So I knew that world really deeply. I'm like, I think I'm well positioned to do this. And so the inequality lens for me was there. The passion for fitness was there. I was a scholar already. And then honestly, I mean, I'm sure like any smart person, like you can't not think critically about the worlds that you're in. So I'd be at the gym looking at these treadmills, looking at the weird locker room rituals people had. And I'm like, how did we get here? And that how did we get here question is really like what historians spend all their time answering. And so that's that's how I got to it. Yeah. And so, yeah, let's get into that and let's talk about that a little bit, because if you think about wellness now, I mean, sort of everybody's into it. And there was a time you mentioned it, obviously, in your book, and you mentioned it on several podcasts that I was listening to. Essentially, there was a kind of um, anti, it was sort of seen as anti-masculine to think about your appearance or to think about fitness. So there was a time and going back to like the Chris Rock joke, right, where it was mostly geared toward women, right? Rich women in yeah. white neighborhoods, predominantly white neighborhoods. So, but now it's not like that. Now, if you go to the gym, I mean, it's almost 50-50. It's something Sometimes, you know, gyms are kind of full of men and men are kind of more outward about it. So I remember back when I grew up in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was a stigma against being metrosexual. The idea was like, if you cared about the gym, obviously, you know, you were kind of seen as gay, which was a bad thing back then. But now it's kind of evolved. So can we talk about that a little bit? How did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. There's so much going on there. So the basic strokes of kind of what happened is that. The reason that all of those attitudes about like it's inappropriate for straight men to care about the gym, um, the reason those existed and the reason that those went away are this exercise probably until the 1970s, 80s, even 90s, but almost until the early 2000s, I would say, was seen as like narrowly physical, right? Like this was not about mental health. This was not about well-being. This was not about being a fully actualized individual. This was like kind of about the way you looked. Caring about the way you looked was seen as totally normal and good for women to care about. But a dude who cares what he looks like, as you said, you must be gay, right? And so to the extent that exercise is seen as this like pretty narrowly aesthetic project, men are not, men who are into it are considered like kind of suspicious. Like, shouldn't you be playing football, dude, or worrying about sports scores or, you know, like, you know making a business plan or something. Whereas women were seen as like, yeah, that's totally appropriate. Of course you want to be skinny and beautiful. That's your value in the world. And so to the extent that exercise is seen as narrowly physical, then yeah, it is a kind of easier sell to women for whom that's seen as appropriately feminine. Now that changes for a whole range of reasons. Like one, and this is something I chart kind of in the middle of the 20th century, we really as a society buy in a lot more to this idea of mind-body connectedness and the idea of what I call kind of basically like the wellness ideal, which is that mind and body are connected. You cannot be a fully actualized person unless you're working on both. And that also it's individual's responsibility to kind of take, take responsibility and take agency over their health. Once we have that more exalted idea of like what fitness is and like what it's for, then more people are expected to get involved and it's considered to be less suspicious. And so I think that's kind of really important in understanding that change. And then of course, there's the gay liberation movement and like the general move of society to be more accepting of a wider range of expressions of masculinity. And I do think it's important, like Gyms actually were a place where a lot of gay men hung out like before it was acceptable to 
go to a gay bar or to be sort of more out in public. And so it is this complicated thing where it's totally unfair to ever to have assumed that because a guy was into exercise and weightlifting that he was gay. But on the other hand, in a really homophobic moment in society, like physique magazines, bodybuilding clubs, et cetera, were places that gay men could find solace and hang out with each other. So, you know, it's it's one of those complicated historical phenomena. You know, it's interesting. There's a, there's a few things actually there that that are that are very interesting. So, like for example, for women, uh, from reading your book, I I could tell that even in the early like early 1900s, this wasn't even something that women were expected to do either, right? Like this was something that maybe like strong men or people in the circus um, were interested in, like in terms of bodybuilding. And even then, it wasn't really accepted by the public, right? So that's the complicated thing about women. So like what I just said, like, oh, women, you can exercise because you're expected to be pretty. That is acceptable only if the purpose is to be pretty. And at that period, you're talking about if the exercise is very gentle, because literally up until like the 1970s, yeah, okay, women are expected to be pretty, but you should do that by not eating and, you know, wearing um, like corsets and fashion. You should do light exercise, but nothing that is too rigorous because there was all of this fear that like your uterus would fall out quite literally. That's what people worried about. Okay. Yeah. Your oh. uterus would fall out that, um, that, you know, you would develop muscles, which were unfeminine that also you would be, um, like develop these unladylike, uh, traits like being competitive or individualistic, like all of that was kind of part of it. And so it was this really fine line. Like you could do gentle exercise, group dance, et cetera, but nothing too much. Yeah. And then even the gyms, right? Like uh, that used to be just like a place where men went exclusively, right? Uh, the, the idea of having it be co-ed, that didn't happen till way later, right? Uh, I think yeah, Jacqueline so or- yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So basically you had these gyms, which were mostly um, weightlifting places, and those were essentially all men. And then you have in like the 19th, late 1950s and 1960s, some of these folks who come out of Muscle Beach and are kind of seeing that there's more interest in exercise because there was a lot of fear, again, about like the result of all of the sedentariness, especially in the Cold War. And you had some of these gyms like really trying to push back on the idea that these are places for like big muscly men to hang out. And you have places that have ladies days and they have kind of lightweight lifting and they have, um, you know, some sort of more, not, not like big choreography, but sort of like sculpting, I guess you would call it, or toning classes. And um, those are geared more towards women. And often they're kind of salon offerings there too. Right. What's so interesting is that it's kind of a misconception that there's this sort of broad-based standard of beauty for both men and women in terms of who they're attracted to. So it's actually a little bit more culturally and even not just culturally, uh, context-dependent just in general. And I say that that matters because culture is not the only thing that matters in terms of resources. So what you find is like in these different studies about who people find attractive, what's interesting is it's often, again, misconception, and I would say pretty reductionist to think that, well, women tend to find masculine features attractive, like strong joy. Uh, broad shoulders, uh, tiny waist, you know, whatnot. And for women, it's you know, pretty much uh, high cheekbones, uh, the hip to waist ratio, et cetera. But what's so interesting is that actually, I don't know if you knew this, it actually differs by context. So what happens is when resources are scarce, that's when women prefer more masculine men because the idea is like, oh, he's the protector. Or this is the person that I need for myself. But what's interesting is that where resources are plentiful, what happens is it's the opposite, that men tend to actually be, uh, more feminine men tend to actually be in high demand. So if you 
look at history right now, going back to Natalia's work here. So when you're going into history, you look at the kind of scarcity of resources made more kind of plump men more attractive. So you had these societies where, right, attractiveness was essentially plumpness, where the idea is, you know, the more weight you carried with you, the, the heavier, you know, the more the richer you were, right? The more resources you gathered. So when did this started? When did this shift happen, right? Was it a predominantly, uh, was it kind of fostered or sort of spurred by the American culture where we started saying to ourselves, well, weight isn't now important. It's not indicative of attractiveness because we are just such a wealthy nation, right? Now we can obviously focus on fitness. Maybe fitness is the kind of ultimate symbol now of, right, go ahead. Well, yeah, no, I think that the big shift that happens is basically like you have um, something I described early in the book, like this kind of celebration of fat cats or women who look leisured. And it's this moment, like kind of like early industrialization, pre-industrialization when looking like you have access to caloric food and leisure when most people are working in manual jobs and like it's really hard to get access to caloric food like that's attractive because you look abundant and rich you're not like this bony laborer who's starving once industrialization kind of expands the food ways and makes food much more abundant and you have more people who are working in sedentary jobs looking like you have the discipline to resist those caloric delights and also to um you know make yourself go and work and uh, physically because it's not really part of your everyday life, that kind of becomes more attractive. And I find it really interesting actually in terms of that body ideal. So some of the kind of early fitness, um, you know, personalities like Jack LaLanne and some of his contemporaries who really grew up like at the beginning of the 20th century, they all have this narrative about like before they were fit. And it's always like, I was a frail, sickly boy. And it's always like they were very skinny and sick and like, you know, sort of emaciated. And then they put on muscle and get strong. By the time you get to like Richard Simmons or people in like the 1980s, it's always, I was fat and obese and I lost the weight to be strong. And I think that shows a lot about what the kind of like default physical state is in our country. And that has a lot to do with the way people are eating and the way people are moving or not moving. Yeah, I know for Alan, it was actually more of the latter. So for him, when he started working out, it was because for him, it was a huge weight loss journey. Sure, yeah. sure. I didn't expect you to go there. Huh. No, it's just, a great story, so, though. Yeah, no. So once upon a time, I used to weigh uh, 300 pounds and not easy to. Uh, so basically, I'd gotten into going to the gym, right? Gotten that discipline down. But then diet was a big thing, right? Like I was able to go every day. No problem. But to stop eating chicken parm and whatever, all the foods that I loved, you know, it was, it was a very tough thing. Eventually, though, I was, I was able to to do it. Just took a lot of uh, discipline. Um, but yeah, it's very hard to like unlearn so many bad habits, right? As far as that goes, uh, yeah. even when you intellectually know what you need to do, for you to like, for example, even if I know that at the end of the day, my willpower is at its lowest, right? So I'm like, okay, I won't have the bad food around me and all of that. It doesn't matter now anymore. If you have Uber Eats or whatever, and something's open past, you know, 12 a.m. or whatever, they, they kind of got around that that thing I was uh, trying to do. But um, what's the main point here? The main point is that, uh, yeah, it, it was actually just about uh, losing weight, right? And for some reason, that was part of my the context of my values, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas well- if this was... If this was, yeah, if this was like a hundred years ago or so, or maybe just a little bit less, be like, oh, uh, yeah, he's- I'm rich. <laughs> yeah, I'm rich. I look, look, look at my status, you know, for depending what country I was in. Yeah, this would be cool, you know, but- 
Yeah. yeah, no, totally. And you see like when an important, first of all, congratulations. That's so impressive. Like, you know, that's really impressive. And one of the things with this book, honestly, like that I try to kind of try to be careful about, it's like, I don't want to uncritic, I don't want to uncritically celebrate weight loss because I think there's so much in our fitness industry that like centers like, oh, you got to be skinny, especially for women. Like, you know, got to lose weight. Like that's the only reason you'll work out. And I don't want to like amplify that because I think it can be really damaging. On the other hand, like losing weight is such an important part of being healthier for a lot of people. And so like what I try to do almost more as a fitness professional than a scholar is like not make people like there are women now, I think in particular women who like are embarrassed about wanting to lose weight. Like, you know, it's like not just being embarrassed that you feel like you have weight to lose, but you're like embarrassed to show you want to lose weight because you should be loving your body exactly as it is. And like, you know, yeah, I wish we should all love our body, but I also think there's something liberating of being like, you know what? I would feel better five pounds lighter or like even just just even moving it from that like I know I am not moving enough or I know that I end up eating like bowls of cereal at 12 p.m at 12 a.m I know that's not good for me like I need to shift that and weight loss being part of that and I think that like sometimes we're in a, like a weird moment where we've had all these positive uh, like evolutions towards like pushing back on some of this fat hatred and like the obsession with weight loss, but like, we don't want a new set of negative expectations where we like, don't even talk about weight loss as something that's important. that can be important and good, but that's not what I was going to say. <laughs> what I was going to say is I think in relation um, to your story, one of the things that's really interesting that we see in terms of a shift of like, you know, the, the effect of lifestyle or our culture on bodies is that one of the things I talk about in the book is that, like, there's this really important turning point in like the 1950s when there's all this concern about how like the good life in the suburbs is making people fat, kids, adults. And like the reason people are so stressed about that is because it's like, wait a minute, we thought this was like the best of what America has to offer. Like it's the middle of the Cold War, the beginning of the Cold War. You've got like, you know, Nixon, Eisenhower, Kennedy. They're like, America's amazing. We have suburbs and cars and washing machines and televisions. But then it's a bunch of reformers who are like, Yes. And the paradox of that prosperity is that the kids are getting fat and they're not going to be able to fight. And this is what they call like push button luxury is ruining kids' bodies. And so it's really interesting because it is like the problem of too much affluence is having that effect. Fast forward to the Obama administration. They're saying almost the same stuff. Kids are fat. They're not going to be able to lead productive lives, blah, 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 blah. But it's all focused on black and brown poor kids in the cities. And so like, it's still the same issue of like aspects of American life are making people unfit and honestly soft, which was the language that both of them used. But I think it's really interesting how the problem body moves from like, you know, white people in the suburbs to kind of black people in the inner city. Because by at that point, you had, you know, this whole fitness industry where those white people in the suburbs are, you know, who's Chris Rock is talking about, they're going to the gym and they're like, you know, paying for their kids to play on sports teams or whatever. And so I think that that's a really interesting evolution in terms of like, who's considered to like be the, the center of this problem. Right. And what's so interesting, again, going back to your kind of earlier point is that, um, Oh, wow. I hate when I lose my thoughts. Uh, I could take it a different way. Why? No, wait. No, no, no. I want to stick to it. Um, oh, I hate when this happens. All right, go ahead. All right. I'll, I'll pick up on that. No yeah. We'll edit it out. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm just, okay. Uh, but yes, yeah, so 
Okay, yes. So as far as uh, the steps that the government sort of took, right, to sort of intervene, right? What exactly did they do when uh, I, I believe it was a uh, a couple of Swedish doctors, if I'm not mistaken, who uh, saw that problem? Yeah. Oh, German. Yeah, yeah. Apologies. Yeah. Okay. Um, they might be Austrian, actually. I'm not sure. European. Let's put it that way. Yeah. God. <laughs> um. So all right. So basically you have the 1950s and, uh, you know, America's supposedly doing great. There's like the GI Bill and like there's all this kind of like expanding middle class, et cetera. But it's in White Plains, New York. So just outside of the New York City that this homemaker, Bonnie Pruden, who was this really active um, outdoors woman and she'd been a dancer, she kind of notices excuse me, that all these kids are like never going outside and they're putting on weight and they're using the remote for everything. And, you know, dads are taking the train to work and they're having martinis with lunch and dinner and like, what's going on? And so she teams up with this doctor, Dr. Hans Krauss, who's, who also is realizing that there are problems with sedentariness because he has this posture clinic in New York. And he realizes for the first time, there's this problem he's never heard of chronic back pain, like chronic back pain comes from sitting all the time, it turns out. And so he's like, yeah, totally. This is happening with grownups too. And people are also noticing men are having more heart attacks. So like, there is a little bit of a sense that there's a real health problem here. So what they do is they take this test that Krauss and this other doctor Dr. Sonia Weber had designed, and it's basically measuring some like strength and flexibility tests for children. They give it to kids in Europe and they give it to kids in the US and they find out that the US kids are like way worse in everything, flexibility, strength, agility. And um, they published these results in this very obscure journal in the 1950s, like a physical education journal, nobody cares. But then finally they get the attention first of a few athletes and who then bring it to the White House basically. And they're like, here's the problem. This is a national security risk. These kids are not going to be able to defend the Cold War, um, defend us in the Cold War if, you know, it ever gets hot. That gets the attention of President Eisenhower right quick. And he appoints President Nixon to be the head of this commission, which effectively becomes the first presidential council on youth fitness. This is a really huge deal, not because they were so well-funded, not because they actually created programs we still have with us today, although maybe a few of them we do. But actually, it's just... What's so important is that um, they helped us evolve as a nation from this idea that exercise was this narrowly physical thing that's for narcissists and like freak shows on a stage who want to lift weights to the idea that, wow, in a modern society, people need to exercise every day. This is Mm -hmm. not only for your personal health, because there were a lot of people who were like, this is bad for you. Don't lift heavy things. Like, don't run too fast. You're going to hurt yourself. Your heart's going to explode this is good for you. And also it's a form of civic duty. And that is really important. And it sounds very sort of like self-important and moralistic, and it is a little bit, but I think what's so important there is like, they really needed that like layer of moralizing to counteract really strong ideas that like, if you're into your body and hanging out with men, you're like very suspicious and like, you're basically like a weirdo and an outcast. And so that was a really important step in kind of switching that sentiment. 
Right. And what's so interesting about that. So now going back to the point that I was going to make earlier is this is always going to be, or I think it at least has been related to status. So regardless of kind of what, regardless of objectively what exercise and healthy lifestyles actually are. So whether you're on kind of one extreme and you're using it as a status signal where you're on Instagram or whatever, you know, even Twitter, whatever else, you know, talking about how how often you go to the gym, posting selfies or whatnot, whatnot, or you're on the other extreme and you're kind of shaming these people and saying, well, you know, this sort of feeds into the patriarchy. You guys are maintaining this horrible fat shaming system that's essentially run by, you know, fit white men who have all the time in the world to work out. It's kind of like you can't really figure out what's the best way to go because it seems like everybody has an incentive to take a side. So whether you're against exercise or maybe let's say maybe it's not that extreme, maybe you're some for some mild form of exercise or you're like a fitness nut and, you know, you again, you use this sort of to signal how great you are. So it's like you're virtually virtual signaling on one end or your status signaling on the other. You know, I can imagine that the average person looks at this debate and wonders like, should I work out? Should I not work out? How often should I work out? Am I an asshole for working out? Am I a patriot for working out? Am I doing a disservice to my country because my health insurance is eating up all my money now because I'm going to the doctor all the time? Right. So how do we begin to start looking at these questions then? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think everybody should probably work out at least a little bit. Right. And to me, like the big thing with that is like, people is like, I believe that, but I also don't believe that we should like impose some like forced exercise regime on people because that's just like horrible and oppressive. I believe we should live in a society where more people have an opportunity to exercise on their own terms. That's what the way I think about it. Like, you know, in the same way that if you have tons of money and time and you can pick I want to go to Soul Cycle today, and then I'm going to go run a half marathon in California in March, and this, and you have this like menu in this like capitalist buffet that we have. Like that's a very privileged position to be in, and I dare say, even though exercise is always work, it can even be fun <laughs> because there's all of these kind of like things around it that keep it novel. So, yes. ideal, yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No. So ideally, I think we should like be in a situation where everybody has the opportunity to move in on their own terms. You don't have to be going to destination half marathons. But I, I do think also like everything that you're saying, I'm kind of smiling and laughing along because I think a lot of that, like being in one's own head is because like people do tend to have very strong opinions about like other people's bodies and what they're doing with them. And so I think like, mind your own freaking business, you know, <laughs> like there's that, do you guys watch that gym influencer, Joey Swall? Do you know who that is? Oh, I know him. Yeah. I, I don't know. Who yeah. Is it? yeah so like, he's like, like, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I can't endorse his full body of work because I've only watched a few of his posts. But like he is this like big, tough, like kind of like bodybuilder guy. He calls himself the CEO of Gym Positivity. And the thing he does that I like is that he like despises the people who like take videos of people at the gym that that to make fun of them. You know, like the kooky old guy with like paper towels under his headphones, like dancing on the treadmill. Like someone posts that, like, look at this clown. It's like what's your problem? He's there doing his workout. He's not bothering you. Like, leave him alone. Why do you have to ridicule him on the internet? And I think that like people are sort of like mean, you know, and I think that we should let go of that judgment, even if sometimes we maybe feel a twinge of it ourselves. I do think on the other hand though, that because a lot of us for very understandable reasons feel a little insecure walking to into a gym or starting something new or heading out for a run, we also should probably remember most people are not like looking to make fun of you on the internet. <laughs> you know, like I remember I used to be 
really self-conscious about going to dance classes. And I was in the background and I said to my friend, like, oh my God, I'm just so mortified if I'm going the wrong direction. She's like, honey, nobody is looking at you. They're looking at the Broadway dancers in the front row who are like nailing this. And I think there is a little bit of that too. So it's that balance of both mind your own business and also realize probably most people maybe are minding their own business a little bit more than you think. Yeah. I, I, I usually, when doing something like that kind of puts me out there, I just think that people care more about like what's going on with them. They're usually more concerned about like, oh, uh, how do I feel? What are my concerns? Like what's going on with me right now? Right. So yeah. usually, yeah, they're not paying so much attention to you. So like, uh, yeah, when I would go to the, when I first started going to the gym, um, I remember being very conscious of like how I'm running and like, let's say, you know, I was, I was a little bit bigger. So like my chest going up and down and all this, I'm like, are people looking at this, my stomach flapping and all this and not really, or if they do, they just notice it for a second, but they're not thinking what I'm thinking about it, you know, as far totally. as that goes. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Big deal. Like you're your harshest critic, you know what I mean? And like most, like, yeah, I think that it, it's such a dangerous cycle to get in. And I do think it is actually interesting though, when we like sort of theorize the gym, it's like a space because it is public. Like you're there running and you're there with all these other people who you don't know. But on the one hand, on the other hand, like you're there kind of doing like sort of intimate work, right? We're like sweating our asses off. I've got like your legs in the abductor machine, like spread Eagle. Like it's very, like, it's a kind of weird space. And one of the concepts that I use from sociology to talk about it is this notion of a third place, right? That's not quite public and what not quite private. It's not your home. It's not your work. And I think that um, like one thing in the pandemic that I I think was actually a really keenly felt absence absence was not having those third places. And that like, even if you were lucky to have a Peloton membership and, you know, a squat rack at your house or whatever, I think a lot of people realize they kind of like that, that interaction or not quite interaction of just being around other people when they exercise. No, totally. Yeah. During that year, almost two years of no gym being available at all. That was that was totally nuts for me because that, that was the place I would go to not to even escape, just to kind of work through my work through my thoughts. Like, let's say I'm doing some kind of cardio, listening to maybe some music while kind of doing something. Maybe I'm working something out in my head while that's all happening. That was the place to go to do that. If I was at home, uh, my experience of working out at home, and I'm sure other people could relate to this, too, I could do it. It's just that something about being at a place that's that the setting is meant for working out and there's all these other people doing the same thing. It kind of puts you in that headspace. But when you're at home, uh, it's like that's it's the same place where you rest. It's the same place where you watch TV or play games or whatever it is. And it, it, the associations in your mind, it just kind of I don't know. It's very hard to do things like work out, let's say. Oh, so, totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think one of the things that I don't know if it's a positive aspect of the pandemic, but like it is an outcome of the pandemic is really having to like revisit how and why we do the things we do, because when you are like put in the situation of like you're saying like, all right, I'm doing my podcast here and then in, in an hour I'll move these books and this will be where I'm writing my book. And then I've got a yoga mat like three inches away and I'm going to do that there. You kind of like really have to be much more deliberate about segmenting these aspects of your life or all you're going to do is work all day. Right. And all you're going to do is kind of, um, you know, 
like be with your kids or whatever. And because we don't have that kind of natural structure that comes from like, oh, at 630, I'm meeting my friend for dinner or there's a yoga class that I go to. And so I think that was sort of very disorienting in a lot of ways, but also kind of definitely pushed me to think about like, oh, I really value like going out and seeing friends and having that and, you know, that that exterior life. Yeah. And so what? Oh, well, I'm just, I'm very curious because this is actually a good place to connect this to. When did sure. self-actualization self and fitness sort of become synonymous? Oh, that's close to the question I'm going to ask next. Perfect. Okay. Yeah, go for it. Awesome. Yeah. So um, it's a process like everything, right? But you have kind of countercultural folks who are talking a lot about self-actualization really in like the 1960s and 70s. It's kind of probably the picture that a lot of us have of these kind of hippies and people who are, you know, retreats, they're doing yoga, they're experimenting with kind of non-Western medicine and therapy, like Reiki and, and acupuncture and all the rest. And like, they're talking and, and psychedelics and, you know, they're talking about kind of mind expanding and self-expanding work um, that that it, that is using the, the language of self-actualization. There are a few bodily practices there that I think are really like important bridge phenomena or bridge activities that kind of really begin to meld that with fitness. One is yoga and the other one is running because both of those practices, people are really, people in that world are engaging in them and are seeing them really as more than like, oh, you're trying to get your calves to look this particular way, or you're trying to burn these calories or whatever. And you have people with yoga, very obviously like in the US and everywhere, it was kind of first considered to be a like spiritual practice rather than a physical practice. So that's sort of like embedded in there. Um, and then with running, you know, people who were doing work with psychedelics and with drugs and kind of mind expansion and in the human potential movement talked about the natural high of running and the endorphins and the kind of physiological transformations that happen there that open you up to a kind of higher consciousness. And I think that that kind of like more elevated language around what these two exercise practices could do for you um, really is important in kind of like setting that in motion in a really important way or accelerating it, I should say. Yeah. And so now relating it to mental health, right? Uh, so we were talking about kind of what it was like for, I don't know if this is a movement, but let's say the anti-fitness group. So I do get the sense that a lot of times when, even though people do take a social a social justice type stance, there is some jealousy there, right? The idea is like, well, you know, you guys have the time to work out. I feel like I have to compete with you. This might not necessarily be admitted, but the idea is, you know, it kind of sucks, right? I don't want to be in this unfair position, nor do I want other people to be in it too. But I think a lot of times, and this is something that we talked about on other episodes, of our show, uh, a lot of times people don't notice that those people who are fitness, like, uh, let's say not just experts, but obsessed with fitness, a lot of times men mental health wise, fitness doesn't do for them what they think that it does. So yes, they might be on social media. Yes, there's obviously a selfish narcissistic component to it. But a lot of times these people have body dysmorphia, they have eating disorders. Uh, if you're a guy, you might have a muscle dysmorphia, dysmorphia, which is a kind of version of body dysmorphia. And so a lot of times you don't see what's behind the curtain is that yes, they do have maybe a little bit more affluence and they do have the time to work out. Yes, they do get to feel good about themselves because yes, they're obsessed with likes and they probably get a ton of them. But you're a lot of times not seeing that these people definitely struggle. So I like that you oh, focus yeah. on 
Yeah, I, I like that you focus on the mental health aspect of it because the idea sometimes is if I just start working out, I'm going to feel great about myself, right? So on this other end with these folks that don't really see, again, what it's like behind the curtain, they think, wow, like these sons of bitches, why do they get to be the happy ones? Like, you know, I'm over here. I care about the community. I care about, you know, eliminating the patriarchy. These are all great things. And then why is it that like society rewards them? But again, there's so much more to it than that. So, yeah. Well, yeah, exercise can totally, I, I agree. There's definitely a, a, some of the critique of like exercise is problematic, even though it can be very correct. Yes, definitely comes from the fact that of like, oh, I feel like I should be doing that too, you know? Um, and, there, and sometimes I think the smarter critiques are critiquing that expectation, right? Like it is frustrating that we all feel like we should be exercising all the time. But to your point about the fact that exercise can morph into its own obsession and really damaging kind of form of self-harm. I mean, I've been really compelled reading some of the work of there's this woman, Emmy Nightfeld, who wrote a book called Acceptance. And she had major struggles with like all kinds of things, self-harm, drugs. She grew up in a really difficult way. And what she talks about is that, you know, she got through a lot of that with therapy and with help. And, but she ended up sort of channeling a lot of that energy into really excessive exercise. Like, you know, going to two yoga classes and then running six miles and then like going rowing or whatever. And she did this. I mean, she says in some ways this served the same function as like cutting myself or abusing drugs or anything like that. But she said, nobody detected it. She's like, I actually had like a really good team and people who love me around me, but because we so reflexively associate working out more with a good thing, the idea that I was going out for a run, even when I just got back from yoga and I had just done this and I had a back injury, most people are like, oh, that's good for her, you know? And I think, and that made it a lot harder to detect that it was a real problem. And so one of the reasons, like, wow. it's funny. So I was telling you guys, like I did just did the whole audio book. So I read literally my book all the way through over three days, which is a very painful process. But yeah. one of the things that like, you know, you're your own worst critic in a way. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, kind of like going back and forth on is this good for you? Is this bad for you? But the truth is like, it's freaking complicated. Like, you know, we have both these, we have these like extreme ends where yes, we live in a culture where it's easy for this to become a huge problem. And people are obsessed with exercise and like doing too much and chasing crazy unattainable body types and you know and that exists but then we also have this epidemic of sedentariness which is another huge freaking problem and so i do think we've got to kind of hold in our heads the fact that all of this can be true at once and think of like policy solutions and sort of a cultural repertoire that allows us to address all of this and really to see it as parts of the same um you know sick society quite honestly <laughs> Yeah. And I would also add to that. What's so interesting, especially when you think about exercise and self-esteem is that it kind of works both ways. It's not just for men. I mean, women feel good about themselves and it's not necessarily related to patriarchy. So here's right. why I say that. And here's what comes to mind. So I don't know if you know of the professional wrestler, China. Have you ever heard no. of her? Oh, okay. No. Oh my God. Such an interesting story. So they just did a biography on her at A&E. So, so she came from a really horrific household. So super abusive uh, upbringing, both parents just, I mean, even though her mom, I would say was less much involved in it than her father was, but whatever. So the point is she was cutting herself. Uh, she struggled with self-esteem. So people said that she looked like a man. Uh, she was kind of like bigger than the average girl. And so whatever, she had difficulties in school. And so at some point she decided she found the gym, right? So she started working out. She became a bodybuilder. 
And so this was about the mid, no, no, this was the early nineties and mid nineties. So at the time, nobody looked like her. So she was constantly at the gym and these guys, like the gym bros, they essentially took her in. And so she ended up dating one of them. He fell in love with her. He's like, oh my God, I've never seen such passion and drive from a woman before, especially in this context. Like, this is so amazing. And so she said that the only way I felt good about myself was having discipline, right? Was putting myself and investing myself in this place that I pretty much lived in. So what she did was she went to school, she went through her classes and then literally lived in the gym for nights and weekends. And so she developed a physique that was unheard of and unseen at the time, especially by a woman, right? I, I maybe female bodybuilding was a thing at the time, but I promise you her look was nothing like the female bodybuilders. So then she gets into the World Wrestling Federation. Uh, so these two wrestlers, Shawn Michaels and Triple H, they see her in a hotel room and they're like, oh my God, like who looks like you? So here she is. She's trying to find some agent or somebody to essentially like ask like, hey, I want to be a wrestler. Can you like help me out here? And so these two guys who are the top stars, they're like, yo, we have to bring the, her, we have to bring her in. Like she is amazing, right? And now, so it's like, okay, what do you do with her? And she's competing with like these other women. She can't really compete with them. So now guess what? Now she has to compete with the men. And so fast forward, she becomes the first ever female men's wrestling champion. She beats our guy, sees the moment podcast guest, Jeff Jarrett for the intercontinental title, which is like the coolest thing. So right on the one hand, you have this argument. Well, okay, yes, she's sort of feeding into the stereotype, which is associated with patriarchy. But on the other hand, this lady was breaking glass ceilings, man. And if it weren't for her, the whole women's division in the world wrestling entertainment industry and just in wrestling in general, it wouldn't have even been a thing. So again, it's complicated. It's hard to make sense of this because, you know, you think about, oh, girl power is like this bad thing. But then on the other hand, man, she inspired millions of girls across the world. Like people, yeah. little girls would come up to her and they'd be like, oh my God, I want to grow up to be you. And it was incredible. Yeah, I just looked her up. I didn't know her story at all. Well, I do. She seems definitely like a unique individual. And like, it seems to me that like somebody like that really should make us resist like easy generalizations, as you're saying about like what women are capable of or not capable of. And um, yeah, I think those, you know, someone like her is obviously unique, but it's a good reminder of that, right? That there are, that like we all, who knows what our capacity is to break that boundary or that kind of like stereotype of what people think we should be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's uh it's I'm wondering, right, with uh with our sort of obsession with fitness, right? Like so first of all, the just kind of looking at it, right? The the evolution of fitness in the country, right? My first impression is that it's like an overall net positive, right? In the sense that, well, if we did become more sedentary, which we did, right, overall, people struggle with things like uh chronic uh, back pain. Or just like literally even even now, even more so with like working from home and all of that being a thing, right? Um, I, I definitely think it's more positive. But on the other hand, I guess you could make an argument that, you know, with social media and like kind of uh, maybe like young girls, young, young boys, right. or even like adults kind of being- Yeah, the like, suicide rate's going up, right? I wasn't even aware of yeah, that. I wasn't yeah. even thinking that. But yeah, th there you go. Uh, but then there's this other aspect to it where uh, we've become so kind of like it's, it's something you mentioned earlier, like in our heads, right, about about this. And it can't be good to be in your head, right? That's like another filter through which you're you know, seeing the world through. You can't even look at it with like clear eyes, essentially, right? But mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. How, how do you feel about it? Do you think it is like a, still overall net positive that you know, so many people are are into fitness, even though there's all these negative aspects. The dark side, Ryan. Look, if you ask me if I'd rather be a woman today or basically any other time in our history, like as pertains to fitness, 
I'd probably pick today. <laughs> like, I, you know, okay. and I think that's sort of the ultimate yeah. test, right? Would you really yeah. rather live in another moment? Um, you know, I think that it is better because we do have this ever expanding notion of like who can be fit and who should have like, you know, like, and what exercise is like the definition of exercise. We didn't even talk about that has really changed from like calisthenics and weightlifting to cardio to sort of like integrated strength training, hit all that, like we have all of it now. And um, I think that things have gotten better because there's like much greater inclusivity. I do think we have these two sort of like twin problems, which kind of, we just talked about. One is an issue of access that, you know, due to a lot of things, like not everybody can fully participate in this. And the other one is this kind of like almost the opposite issue of this, the oppressive nature of this expectation that like exercise makes you a good person. More exercise is good. Why aren't you working out? You know? And I think that those, um, I think it's unfortunate that we do live in a society where we have that kind of, the, those sets of challenges. Um, I'm off, I often think of a student told me this once, but it's also, I, I cite a scholar who said us it sort of more formally in the the book of a woman in the or a young girl in the 19 late 1990s who kind of says you know I wish I grew up when my mom grew up like all she had to do was like smoke cigarettes and starve herself I have to be skinny and I have to have a six-pack you know mm -hmm. and I think that that idea yeah. that like you know the gym can feel like another layer of expectation of what you're supposed to do that is very real you know and as much as I love working out and thinking it can be a form of me time and liberation and empowering and strength and all that and it can like it is another expectation that we kind of all do. This is an important thing. You don't go to the gym. Like what? You know, mm -hmm. that's relatively recent. And I think that there's good and bad parts about that. Yeah. And I wonder if there are any sort of policies that can be implemented to help us become healthier. I mean, because obviously now we have nutritional labels. Uh, I mean, when people go to see doctors as opposed to like 30 years ago, I mean, you're having consultations on your diet, even though some people really hate it. And I get it. Doctors are terrible at times presenting why you need to be on a diet and what that diet should be. It's very restrictive on their end. But I wonder just from your perspective, and again, from a policy perspective, is there anything that we can do to make it easier for people? There is so much that we could do. Literally like policy in almost any area of people's lives would actually make things better. If you had, because I'm going to pick something very far from fitness, apparently, if you had more affordable housing policies so people could live near where they worked and they didn't have to spend hours every day commuting somewhere. Guess what that makes time for? That makes time for any kind of exercise you want. Doing like a video on your laptop at home because you're not tired, going for a run in your lunch hour because you can shower near your house or whatever. That is important. We need better lit green spaces and like public recreational facilities in all sorts of neighborhoods. And are you guys in New York or no? Yeah, yeah, Brooklyn, yeah, New York. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, okay, I'm in in Manhattan, like on near on the west side. This Hudson River Park is the most beautiful thing ever. Like I am there all the time. My children are there all the time. It is fun to go for a walk. It's relatively safe after they caught that guy, but um, it's relatively safe like most of the time. You know to have well-lit, safe streets, running paths, etc., where people feel like they can go play and be outside, like pools, all the rest, that would go a really long way. I also think, I mean, we're talking about fitness because that's what my book is about, but food policy in the United States. Why are these corn subsidies making the most unhealthy food so so inexpensive? Like there is a real problem there, you know? Why is it so much cheaper to open a fast food franchise than it is a fresh grocery store? Not to mention to get all those the the food in the to buy the food, the store from the to buy the food in the store from a consumer yeah. perspective. 
all of those things would go a really long way, I think, towards, um, you know, remedying this issue. Oh, I also think, it's, well, you know, universal health care, but also even with people who have health care, and more coverage for preventative health measures, I think are so important. Like everything from therapy to, you know, physical therapy, physical therapy as well. And like, you know, so many gym memberships, whatever, like all of the things that we need to do to keep us out of the ER and like keep us out of, um, you know, kind of like these acute situations. I think that would help a lot too. No, totally. Uh, I've worked in the health insurance industry and I've seen so many people with plans that don't let you just go see a dietitian. Like you can't just go see a dietitian, get uh, some sort of personalized form of um, just healthcare in terms of like, what should you be eating? It's usually just like, oh, okay, you have high blood pressure. Here's this pill, you know, Um, or your doctor has so many patients. So they're more concerned about, um, I mean, they probably, uh, sorry, let me not generalize. There's a lot of doctors that care about their patients and, and, um, for sure, but it almost seems like, okay, well, in order for me to make ends meet or pay for my rent for my office or whatever other expenses, you almost have to see somebody for maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes tops. You can't really, yeah, it's, it's definitely a messed up system as far as that goes. Um, yeah. And then whole foods, right. Whole foods try to shop there, especially Manhattan, right. Oh my God. It costs so much money. Right. But Hey, I want to go to McDonald's or whatever. And I also just really quick, really quickly want to add education. I think is super important too. So like our parents grew up in the Soviet union. And so my grandmother has a horrendous diet habits. Like they were just, they're so bad. And I would, and my mom did too, for a very long time. And I would ask her, I'd say like, I don't get it. Like, why did you guys eat like this? And she's like, dude, we're poor. Like we didn't really go to school. There's nobody teaching us about healthy habits. So it, it doesn't really work that way. Right. When you don't grow up eating like that, you can't really pass it along to your kids. So yes, when when you were kind of younger, I remember I didn't give you the healthiest things because we just didn't really know about it. It wasn't the thing that we were concerned with. We were concerned with everyday survival. We weren't concerned with our diets. Also, by the way, I found out that like, okay, so this seems so obvious now, but sugar and bread, right? Okay. So I I grew up thinking, oh, fat, just like, oh, anything with fat is bad, but bread, it's okay. Bread is cool. Uh, carbohydrates, not a big deal. That doesn't break down into sugars and then like get stored as fat in your butt. Like, yeah, like if I knew that at an earlier age, who knows? I mean, maybe I still would have eaten that food anyway, because honestly, it's, it's addicting. It's great. It's tasty, yeah. but still, yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, those are trends too. I mean, I grew up in the nineties and I remember too, I was like, you know, sort of like a lot of teenage girls kind of obsessed with my weight, but I would go eat bagels and frozen yogurt, which is packed with sugar. And I thought I was like being so abstemious, wash it down with Diet Coke, these like disgusting chemicals are probably giving me cancer. Like, you know, um, we've really changed our nutritional um, information. And I think that, yeah, the education piece is really important, but I think you've got to pair it with the kind of structural piece too, because, you know, if you know that organic food is healthier for you, but you can only afford McDonald's, like there's a kind of like a cap to what you're able to do. But yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, on all fronts. All right. So as we're starting to wrap up, Alan, any questions for Natalia before we go? Yes. Uh, If we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and of course, buy the book, uh, where can we do that? 
So you can buy the book, Fit Nation, anywhere, Amazon. You can buy it on the publisher site, University of Chicago Press. Um, I am on all the socials, at Natalia Petrozella, Instagram, Twitter. Not very active on LinkedIn, but you can find me there. And I have an author pitch on Facebook. But yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. And I'm at nataliapetrozella.com, which is reasonably updated, um, where you can see events and other cool stuff I'm doing. Awesome. Natalia, thank you so much for coming on. This was excellent. And also it just went thank by so you. quick. Yeah, it did. I know. I know. It was like, I was like so tired. I'm like, oh my God, I have this podcast. And then it just flew by. So thank you so much. Absolutely. I hope you have a good week. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. You Take too. Care. Tag me when it's all up. Okay. You bye. got it. Bye. All right. So everyone, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter, we're at C's underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.